Hey, it's Luke Garrett here, host of the DMV Download Podcast. I'll be dropping into this top news feed once a week, sharing the latest DMV Download episode where we get up close and personal to the ideas and people shaping the D.C. area. Enjoy the show. What is justice and who gets to decide? Those are the two main questions at the center of the D.C. Council's Revised Criminal Code, a document that updates how the district arrests, prosecutes, and sentences criminals. On this first question, what is justice, an odd coalition opposes the revised criminal code, saying it's soft on crime and doesn't deliver on justice for the victims. Those voices include Republicans on Capitol Hill, D.C.'s mayor, a Democrat, and the city's chief of police. Where is the victim in in all of this? Who does this actually help? Is the victim being helped or is it the person who victimized, the person who carjacked, the person who robbed? But D.C. council members like Robert White say the revised criminal code does deliver on justice. Our obligation is to take a comprehensive approach. We know that throwing hurt people into cages with other hurt people is not going to heal anybody. Now to that second question, who gets to decide? There are two camps. One believes D.C. has the right to govern itself without Congress getting in the way, like District Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. Keep your hands off of the District of Columbia. But Republicans in Congress, and even a few Democrats, say this bill is too extreme and requires federal oversight. Voices like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell say at the end of the day, D.C. just isn't a state and the Constitution allows Congress to get involved. And when the soft on crime local government has become this completely incompetent, when members of Congress can't go about their daily lives without being attacked, then it's about time the federal government provides some adult supervision. So again, what is justice and who gets to decide? I sat down with longtime D.C. Council Chair Phil Mendelson, who admits the revised criminal code faces an uphill battle in its fight to becoming law. And the code has largely lost the messaging war. But he still holds out hope for the code, launching a wide-ranging defense of a document years in the making. D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about a lot on this show. The D.C. crime bill, the bid for statehood more broadly, height restrictions. But before we get there, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to this audience. You know, you've been in D.C. for a long time. You were first an ANC member in the Uh 80s, and then uh, you were on the D.C. Council in the 90s. Tell us about your history with the city. Uh, I came to D.C. to attend classes at American University moved into McLean Gardens. McLean Gardens was a large rental complex that was undergoing a lot of uh, struggles with its landlord. We were the largest tenant association to exercise the right of first refusal in 1979, mm. became an ANC commissioner for 20 years, ran for the council, got elected in 1998, was an at-large member for uh, a number of years. I can't do the math and became chair in 2012. So let's talk about the issues of the day. There are a lot of them, but we'll start with the D.C. crime bill, which is on Capitol Hill. And just to review for our listeners, a few years ago, many years ago, the D.C. Council asked a committee to review the century-old criminal code. That committee gave a new criminal code, a revised criminal code. The council passed it. The mayor vetoed it. And the council overrode that veto. Now it's making its way through Capitol Hill. Before we get to Capitol Hill, I want to bring us back to that moment where the council was just about to override the mayor's veto, and you were on the mic. You said something along the lines of, and I, was, I remember watching this, you said, I could pick apart these arguments that say 
this new revised criminal code is going to make our city less safe. Mayor Bowser had been saying it. The Washington Post just had released an op-ed saying that. Conti had said that. But in the interest of time, at that moment, you did not, you know, kind of take apart the argument. Now is your time to do that. I'd love to hear why you think this new revised criminal code will actually, in fact, make the city safer. I'm going to state it as a negative or positive. The criminal code will not make the city less safe. It will not make the city less safe. Mm. And that's because sentencing in itself does not have a deterrent effect on crime. And besides, the bill's changes don't come into effect until 2025. And the, some of the provisions, such as the right to jury trial, don't become fully effective until 2030. So when we talk about safety and crime today, no impact. But when we talk about sentencing, the research is very clear. Sentencing is, is not what has a deterrent effect on crime. What does? It's swift and certain justice. Uh, when somebody commits a crime that they're caught, they're caught quickly, they are prosecuted quickly and aggressively. That has a deterrent effect on crime. There's a lot of research about this. Sentencing does not. So just to illustrate the point, we have in the law right now 30-year mandatory minimum for first-degree homicide. And yet we're struggling with an increase in homicides. Well, criminals aren't out there thinking about uh, the mandatory minimum when they're shooting somebody. Sentencing does not have a deterrent effect. Rational actors would not be committing the crimes that they do given the sentences that they could receive. Now, what they do sense is that, for instance, with homicide, there's roughly a 50-50 chance they won't get caught. That in itself is what makes a difference. Mm. A robbery, roughly 75% chance you won't get caught. Uh, When I say that, I mean the closure rate on robberies. Robberies committed last year, only about 25% were solved last year. Now, a few more will be solved this year. But the point is that a whole lot of crimes are not solved. If you want to have a deterrent effect, you need to catch people, close cases, and prosecute them aggressively. And so why, Not the sentencing. And so why this concerted effort by the mayor, by the chief of police in D.C., the police union, do you just chalk this up to fear-mongering? I mean, what, what's I, going on here? I think a lot of it has to do with fear-mongering, uh, absolutely. I think that uh, it's always been a truism in politics that uh, being tough on crime is politically successful. And uh, so to talk about something being, you know, making the city more dangerous or I'm going to I'm going to be tough on crime. I'm going to make it a 40 year penalty Mm. when we know that not only will judges not hand out 40 year sentences, but uh, it doesn't have a deterrent effect. But it sounds good. So that's a big part of it. I think that the chief of police is uh, very un- doesn't fully understand what some of the changes are in the criminal code. And that may not make sense, but this is a complicated document. And what we've done is we've taken different crimes with, with the revised criminal code. We've taken different crimes and we've broken them down into their different elements. Uh, an example of that is, for instance, robbery, which right now is robbery, but under the new code is first-degree robbery, second-degree robbery, third-degree robbery. Mm. When the Criminal Code Revision Commission came up with its recommendations, it got rid of carjacking as a crime because carjacking is actually a form of robbery. Uh, we actually, in it going through the council, put back into the criminal code the uh, carjacking as a separate offense. But, you know, these kinds of changes, I remember the chief of police was sort of apoplectic that we had uh, taken out carjacking. Uh, But you don't need carjacking as a separate offense in order to bust somebody for 
robbery, mm. and in this case, a very serious, uh, I believe, first-degree uh, robbery. And then look at what the penalties are. The point being that this is complex, and there's room for a lot of misunderstanding, and as a result, the chief was uneasy about it. I don't think the mayor fully understands the bill because many of her criticisms that she's leveling now, she didn't level in December when we were voting or in November when it came out of committee. So it's easy to say it uh, makes the city less safe, but uh, prove it to me because you can't prove it to me. Mm. You mentioned Chief Conti. He's been on this very show two weeks ago talking about this bill. And we talked about, you know, recidivism rates. We talked about the preventative, you know, nature and question. But he also brought up another point that was about justice and justice for the victims. He says he's often, you know, standing over a cold body and he sees the victim's mother or father and he wants to give them, you know, justice and that this new revised criminal code with lower sentencing maximums won't deliver on that victim's justice. What do you have to say to that kind of critique? Well, uh, first, and this is a more complicated answer, but what exactly is justice? So I'm thinking, for example, remember when the African-American church was the victim of a mass shooting four years ago, five years ago, Mm -hmm. and many of the parishioners were surprisingly uh, forgiving of the shooter, not that he shouldn't be prosecuted and convicted and sentenced, but... It was just remarkable how forgiving there were. And then there are other victims or victims' families who are feeling much more um, punitive. So what exactly is justice? It is important that when a crime is committed, particularly a crime with a victim, that the perpetrator be caught and sentenced, caught, aggressively prosecuted, get a conviction, All of that's important, and and sentenced. Uh, But what exactly is justice? Is it 10 years, 20 years, 40 years? I think that depends upon the circumstances of the case and not necessarily what the victim wants. Mm. I say that with a little bit of hesitation, but... You know, the remarkable thing about our society is that we tend to look at this more from a, uh, from a broader perspective. And it could be that for a, eight, a 16-year-old, as horrible as it is that a 16-year-old might murder somebody, that when they're 45, we maybe don't want to keep, keep them in prison. Mm. That we recognize it's a very, he or she is a very different person. I'm not giving an absolute here. I, I think that we look at what the criminal laws are in other states. We look at what the practice has been in the district with sentencing, and that should guide us in terms of the revised criminal code, Mm. which, by the way, it has. So some of the Republicans who are highly critical of how dangerous our criminal code revision is, uh, why we reduce penalties for carjacking, I'm not exactly sure that's true, but let's just say it is by a few years, that's the maximum, still well above what the average sentence is, but look at their own stakes. I think Kentucky doesn't even have a, a crime of carjacking. Mm. But they're all in a lather that uh, we reduced penalties for carjacking. If I remember correctly, Tennessee or Arizona, I think both of them, the maximum for carjacking is significantly less than what we have in the proposed revised criminal code. But our reducing penalties is just opening the door to criminals. And I hope you hear sarcasm in my voice because I mean that totally. Yeah. The... Um, There's no question in my mind that there needs to be a severe penalty for a severe violent crime. What exactly that means, 
Some of that depends on the judge and the individual circumstances of the case. Mm. But the criminal revised criminal code, the maximums allow for the kinds of sentencing that we've been handing down in this city for, for years. So it's in the hands of Congress, um, as we've mentioned. Yeah. The House has made their decision. Senate is not in session for uh, at least a week. So for all the Democratic senators who might be listening or wondering what to do, you know, what's your message to those Democrats, fellow Democrats, who are deciding this? Well, my first message to the Democrats, which is not what many district residents would say, is that this bill does not make the district less safe. It does not. And if anything, it is comparable or more severe in many ways compared to other states and their potential sentences. The second thing I would say is if Congress intervenes, they will mess up our criminal justice system. And that is the problem with Congress intervening in the district. I'm, sort of, I'm making a home rule argument here. Mm-hmm. Our criminal code right now is one of the worst in the country. It's not clear in some of its definitions. It is obsolete in some of its provisions. Uh, it doesn't reflect the most current jurisprudence. So if they override, what they've done is they have perpetuated a problem for the district in terms of its criminal justice system. And that is a problem we have over and over again with congressional interference. Uh, So my second message would be hands off. We got this. My first message is it does not make the district less safe. Mm. And do you think that message, that first message, has gotten lost here? Yes. Why? Because it's really easy to demagogue crime. Mm. And just to say, you know, we're coddling criminals. That's a horrible thing. I agree it's a horrible thing to coddle criminals. And then the listener has to look beyond that. And, uh, you know, we're increasingly a headline society. So the headline kind of like nails it. So moving uh, to the White House now. So let's say Democrats, a few Democrats, you know, side with Republicans and vote for the resolution that blocks the revised And that's possible. And, possible. and let me toss out as well. This is like, if I was a Republican, particularly a super conservative Republican, mm-hmm. I would be, in fact, I think they are just salivating right now because they're scoring points at home with their constituents. I'm tough on crime. They're scoring points at home with their constituents. The district is incompetent and it's like way too liberal. And uh, so they're scoring points that way. But then on top of that, they're laying the groundwork for lots of campaign videos next year with, you know, so-and-so Democrat is soft on crime. Uh, the so-and-so, he defended this this uh, District of Columbia, this super liberal District of Columbia. And uh, so this is, they're making the Democrats uncomfortable. And um, that's why they're salivating. And so th- that that's part of the problem that we're dealing with is that If I remember correctly, um, half the Democrats in the Senate, a significant number of Democrats in the Senate are up for election next year. Right. And uh, they do not want to see campaign messages Mm. about how they're soft on crime. Right. So, you know, it's possibly almost likely that, you know, the the Senate will block this revised criminal code. But President Biden could veto it. Right. Uh, So what's your message to President Biden? Uh, It's pretty much the same as to the senators. this, This bill actually does not. Uh, make the district less safe. If anything, it improves our criminal justice system. 
point one. Point two, respect home rule, and related to respect home rule, recognize that uh, you are setting us back in terms of improving our criminal justice system. That would be my message to the president. We'll be right back. And this is a central theme throughout our conversation so far, D.C. statehood. You know, you've been involved in D.C. politics since the 80s. Where does the fight for D.C. statehood kind of stand right now? It feels like with these two bills about to get kind of knocked down that it's on shakier legs. It just seems farther away than it used to. What's your take on that? Well, we kind of knew that our prospects with this Congress were not good. We knew that when a year ago when everybody speculated that both the House and the Senate would go Republican. What I didn't foresee then was that we would have as much trouble as we've had with the House on these two bills, which I think is just going to embolden the conservative Republicans to go after us on other issues. Mm. Uh, I'm moving a bill to rename Good Hope Road after Marion Barry, and I would not be surprised if there isn't a member of Congress, probably from a southern state, a Republican member, probably from a southern state, who introduces a a resolution to overturn that bill. They're going to say all the horrible things that they like to say about Marion Barry. I don't know that that would get through. I'm not speculating that. But it just means we're going to see a lot more of these rough waters Mm. because Republicans are emboldened by what they've accomplished so far. We will see more of that. If we were a state, we wouldn't have this trouble. Mm. There's no other state that has this trouble. And then then we get into the equity issue. But that wasn't your question. Um, We've made a lot of uh, progress over the last few years. And I would say we're closer. That doesn't mean we're close. Um, and I think right now we just hunker down and get through the next two years and then uh, see if we can make more progress. You uh, alluded to that equality issue. And let's say, you know, you're listening to this podcast and you're from Nebraska, right? What's your plight to those who are outside of the district to actually do and would play a role in the making D.C. a state because ultimately it's going to be up to Congress and Congress represents people from around the country, you know. So how do you communicate that plight to people who don't live in the city and don't have representation like residents of the city? Well, uh, first of all, most citizens in the country do not understand, just do not, are unaware that residents of the district uh, do not have the same rights of citizenship that they have. Most people are just unaware of that. And when you ask them, they think we should have the same rights. Uh, The second point I would make is that most people think that we're wholly supported financially by the federal government, and it's not true. We are... Our local dollars come from local taxes and from our citizens. Mm. Uh, The third point I would make to them is that uh, we have the same duties and responsibilities that the citizens of the 50 states do. Uh, This summer I was in Normandy, and when I was in Normandy, I visited the uh, uh, cemetery at Omaha Beach Mm. and placed a flag at a tombstone for a District of Columbia resident who died on D-Day. And he was not the only one in that cemetery from the District of Columbia. Our sons and daughters go to war. And just like in Nebraska or Kansas or any other state. Uh, but we do, have, do not have any representation to um, vote to go to war or to not go to war right. or to raise our taxes or any of that stuff. 
We do not have a member of Congress. Some people say, so I would say this as well, some people say that, um, well, you know, the, uh, 50, the senators of the 50 states represent us. Well, they don't. So when I go to the Hill and I knock on the door from a senator from Pick of State, Idaho, they won't answer. We, we were not represented, mm. and uh, we're an afterthought, or they don't understand. So the debate in the House on the override of the criminal code, uh, one of the Congress members of Congress uh, stood up and talked about uh, uh, federal dollars supporting our budget. They don't even know that it's not federal dollars that support our budget. I, I, and I guess the last point I would make is that there is not one country in the free world where the citizens of the national capital do not have representation in the national assembly or legislature. We are the only country in the free world where the, the federal district does not have representation. Moving to another bill. Well, it's not a bill yet, but it's a conversation. Did I convince you? Uh, <laughs> it was a good argument. I'll say that. It was a good argument. Thank you. Moving to another uh, idea that circulates around this theme of D.C. statehood is uh, the Height Act. In D.C., yeah. you know, we have height restrictions for residential and commercial buildings. Recently, the mayor has proposed to raise those height restrictions for further development, uh, revitalizing the downtown area. Back in 2013, you kind of lobbied and pushed back against a previous push to heighten the restrictions. Where do you stand on that issue, you know, 10 years from then, now in 2023? I still support the current limit on heights. There's a lot of misunderstanding around that. The limit on heights is higher than the zoning, and the zoning is higher than what the development actually is in most of the city. Whoa, whoa, I could put that a little differently. <laughs> so folks think that the reason why we don't have more affordable housing, for example, is because of the Height Act. It's not true. Uh, if you look at our built city, most buildings are below what the zoning would allow. And in most of the city, the zoning is below what the Height Act would allow. Mm. I see. It is a unique and defining characteristic of Washington, D.C., of our nation's capital, of our city, our horizontal skyline. And it's a horizontal skyline that if you look at it from a, from a um, vantage point of, for example, the crest of 13th Street by Cardozo High School right b- before you go down downhill to Florida Avenue, uh, you see the skyline. And it's actually a beautiful skyline. It's punctured by landmarks. National Cathedral, you don't see that from 13th Street, but the National Cathedral or the old post office tower or the Washington Monument or the Capitol, those puncture the skyline and as landmarks, it's just a beautiful city and it's a defining characteristic. But what's the value to that? That, that beauty and that characteristic. Uh, like, human scale and aesthetic. I think also from a development perspective, think of Manhattan, which nobody can afford. You have skyscrapers. I mean, I think Manhattan, when, when I'm in Manhattan, I can feel the energy of these tall buildings and it's sort of dynamic in its own way. Not much of a human scale. Mm. And um, so I, I'm not criticizing other cities. I'm just saying it's a defining characteristic of our city. It makes our city, in my view, beautiful. I think it emphasizes the landmarks, which are beautiful, but it's also a human scale, and I can't overemphasize that because I think that makes a difference in a very subtle way on quality of life. Mm. Uh, if, we, if we start to erode the Hyde Act restrictions 
it will be a never-ending process, just as this controversy has occurred every 10 years or so uh, when somebody who favors development says that uh, comes up with reasons why we should do this. Mm. It's interesting because the mayor uh, fully supported the legislation I put forward 10 years ago to uh, that, that said no change to the Hyde Act. And so let's say, let's just jump into the hypothetical world right now. Let's say the D.C. Council were to, you know, pass an increase of the height restrictions, allowing buildings to be built taller. Would you support Congress then blocking that bill? Of course I wouldn't. I don't think we go to Congress to um, overturn what we're doing on a, on a local level. Okay, so even, even in that would, case, even if we would, like, wouldn't support the issue on a basic level, you wouldn't support congressional overreach. Correct, but I probably would throw myself across the dais in the council meeting and it's that important? Yeah, and probably shrieking a few things. <laughs> um, I, I know what else I was going to say. Go the mayor's it, been talking it. about the Hyde Act in the context of revitalizing downtown in right. the next three to five years. Yes. And that's what makes us even more crazy uh, because development is not the way we're going to revitalize downtown. And it's not that I'm speaking against development, but development takes too long. You have to have an investor. If you're going to change the Hyde Act, you'd have to get through the legal process, you know, the lawmaking process. Even if that were to happen quickly, you then have to go through the zoning process. You have to find a developer. A developer has to find investors. The developer has to come up with plans. The plans have to get approved. And then they have to begin construction. That doesn't happen in the next three to five years. Mm. That's like a decade from now. Mm. So the way to revitalize downtown is, in my view, Stepping back and thinking this way, what attracts people to a place? One thing that attracts people to a place is activity, like nightlife, like theater, culture, cultural events. Um, some of the events that occur downtown now on the weekends, uh, they close streets for races, just activities bring people downtown, more activities. Mm. That would get more people downtown. Getting the federal government to get its workforce back into the offices. That would bring people back downtown mm. and revitalize downtown. Uh, and also people feeling safer. Even though I don't think downtown is dangerous, there's no question that a lot of people feel that the city is less safe. Right. Making people feel safer. Those are ways that will get more people downtown, and that is the way to revitalize downtown. Chairman, Phil Mendelson, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for us today on the DMV Download Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And let us know how we're doing on this show. Give us some stars on your favorite podcast platform and give us a review. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Have a great week, and we'll talk Wednesday.